This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Lyle. Our guest today is Paris Butfield Addison, co-founder of Secret Lab, a mobile development studio which builds games and apps for mobile devices. He has done numerous books, videos, and learning paths on Swift and other topics, and spoken at many conferences, including O'Reilly's OzCon event earlier this month. We'll talk with Paris about Swift and what's new in Swift 3 and 3.1, and working with Swift and Unity for game development. And later in the episode, we'll talk about some of the topics that were highlighted at O'Reilly's Software Architecture Conference in April. Enjoy the show. We're delighted to be joined by Paris Butfield Addison. Books that he's co-authored include Learning Swift, Swift Development for the Apple Watch, and Mobile Game Development in Unity. He is also one of the presenters of the learning path Getting Started with Swift on the iPad, which you can access at O'Reilly's Safari platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com for all the details. Paris is speaking to us from beautiful Hobart, Australia. Hi, Paris. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. We'll uh, spend the majority of our discussion, I think, on Swift. So we're up to Swift 3.1 now, right, as of late March? That sounds right, yes. Yeah. Can you give us a rundown of uh, the highlights of what's new in Swift and what some of those things mean for developers? So Swift 3 actually has less new stuff than Swift 2 did as compared to Swift 1. It's uh, kind of solidifying the language and making things a lot more cohesive and more sensible and easy for people to learn. So they take a lot of community feedback and basically remove things and release and clean things up and tidy syntax up. So Swift 3 wasn't a massive change compared to Swift 2, uh, but it basically made the language a lot more modern and tight. And it's uh, been a process of sort of cleaning up the craft that they introduced and learning which bits people like and which bits people don't like uh, and improving it based on that. And I expect Swift 4 to follow the same path. One of the things that was noted uh, among the new bits was protocol extensibility. Yes. Um, can you explain what that is? Protocols in Swift are a really good way of defining a base set of features that a class can then work with. So you can say your class conforms to a certain protocol, which basically dictates how that class is expected to behave. Uh, you can define a protocol and then apply it to a class where you don't have access to the original source code of the protocol you're applying. Uh, so you can sort of work with bits and pieces and, and connect your stuff to other people's work. The protocol extensibility basically means that Swift lets you have really easy to read code because you can only implement the bits you need. And you can uh, work with Apple's things. So like UI collection view is a, a piece of code that Apple provides that lets you define a collection of objects. So you might like have a grid of objects to look at and scroll through it, like a grid of photos or something. And it behaves in a certain way. So you can use the UI collection view protocol, extend it, and then build your own collection view upon that by taking the bits you need and working with it. It's kind of a very familiar principle to object-oriented programmers, but it sort of does it in a very swifty way. So it's, it's sort of minimal code. This is, it takes out all the boilerplate that you would commonly expect when you're extending something. And it's easy to break something down when you're making edits. It's, it's very compartmentalized and sort of makes it simple to read and, and work with. What about Swift's distinction between different types of functions? In Swift, a uh, function can have a specific function type assigned to it, which basically defines the parameter types and the return types of the function. So you can say, uh, I have a function that takes two integers and returns an integer, or I have a function that takes an integer and returns uh, a Boolean, or things like that. And you can basically define the the type definition of the function. So the function can be summarized as a function that has a parameter int, another parameter int, and returns an int. And uh, the type of this function is int int returning an int. And you can have a function that does nothing. It's uh, a function that has no parameters and returns void. Uh, so you can use these types in Swift like other types. So you can define like a variable uh, to be of a function type and then define an appropriate function that variable. So you can define, say, var uh, my math function, which is of type uh, takes two ints and returns an int. And then you can define, say, your your math function that 
uh, adds two integers and store in the variable math function. Going back to the release of Swift 3 back in the fall of 2016, how big or, or how important was the change regarding the naming of methods and types? <laughs> so one of the big things that Swift 3 did was to rename almost everything. Mm -hmm. And it was important, uh, but it really didn't actually play out as being a huge impactful change. So it's sort of significant okay. historically, and it's interesting from like a, a programming language history perspective in that they started purging all the Apple functions, lost the NS prefix, which originates with Next Step, which is the history of Apple. Go look it up if you're interested. And for a long time, all the Apple-provided functions were started with the letters NS. Now they're not. It's a lot easier to read. I expect new programmers will actually make a lot of sense from that. Uh, the other thing that Swift changed is it emitted all the needless words in its brand new Swifty functions. Uh, so if you wanted to uh, append a, a create, a, create a string and append a string, you go like my string dot string by appending string and then some mm. test some text as your string. In Swift three, you did like my string dot appending and then, then the word, or you might do uh, for in like a, as an array, you might go my array dot insert thing comma at index zero. In Swift 3, you go myarray.insert thing at zero. And it's just removed the word insert. It's just basically removed a lot of needless needless stuff that was not necessarily type. Uh, and I think that's straightforward. It's, it, they made a big deal of it, but it really didn't make much yeah. difference as far as actually using Swift. The compiler and the IDE Xcode take a lot of care of this stuff because it sort of auto-completes a lot of it. And because the Swift compiler does a lot of type checking, uh, it's not necessary to be so verbose with spilling out the name and the type of everything within the function calls, so they removed a lot of that. Paris, you're featured in an O'Reilly learning path on the topic of getting started with Swift on the iPad. Um, yes. Can you, can you talk about Swift and Apple Playgrounds? It's, it's actually a dedicated Swift Playground, right? It is, yeah. So there's an app on the App Store for the iPad. It runs on most of the modern iPads called Swift Playgrounds. It is essentially the Playgrounds feature of Xcode made into an iPad app. So the Playgrounds feature is a REPL, which is a read-evaluate print loop lets you type some code, it compiles straight away and gives you the result. But it's kind of presented in this really beautifully visual environment, which lets you combine images and code and sound and stuff. It's kind of, but not really targeted at children. So it comes with a lot of lessons designed for learning programming. Uh, but if you ignore the Apple lessons, you can just use it as a really great programming testing environment. Uh, I personally do a lot of my work when I'm developing code for teaching. We do a lot of training, obviously, through O'Reilly and just in person in general. Uh, we do a lot of our training development using Swift Playgrounds for the iPad just because it's a really concise way to get people up to speed with the language. It's really exciting from my perspective because I can just tell anyone who has an iPad to go install the Swift Playgrounds app from the App Store and they've got Swift. They don't have to mess around with any complex IDEs or environments yeah. to actually get started. And they're learning a really popular language that's climbing the charts rapidly in this crazy easy way how about how about using swift on non-apple platforms um there's a linux version right yes so apple swift project which is an open source project is doing really really good stuff there uh provides binaries for i think ubuntu linux uh and obviously you can build it yourself for most of the platforms it's actually getting pretty good they've got ibm doing a lot of great work i think there's a a Swift report related to IBM's work on Swift that Raleigh puts out, which is actually pretty interesting stuff. Uh, it's really interesting to watch this develop because lots of people are putting a lot of work into it and it's evolving really fast. So I personally wouldn't use Swift for anything serious in production, say on the web running on a Linux server for a backend yet. Yeah. 
that in six months, I probably would just based on the speed it's evolving because my Swift skills from doing iOS and MacOS work mean that I can be a lot faster than I would otherwise be doing on the web and I can sort of think about things in the same way and use similar data structures and sort of bring myself up to speed a lot quicker. Right now, the web frameworks like IBM's Kitura for Swift are kind of immature compared to your equivalents in sort of Python or Ruby or many of the other popular web framework worlds, but they're getting there and Swift's really exciting because people are putting so much effort into it. It's a really in-demand skill set, so it's nice to be able to do it on the web as well. So I think Ask again in six months and it'll probably be worthwhile people actually using for real production things. It's definitely worth learning now and as a sort of academic learning exercise. Will there be a, a Swift for Windows coming? I think that is being worked on, but I don't think it's a priority. So I really I don't know where that is right now. It's definitely being worked on. There's definitely code stubs in there. There's definitely people working on it. I think with a bit of effort, you could probably kind of make it work now but I don't think it's officially supported by the project yet. Uh, I'm sure people are working on it pretty hard, though. Now, one of the main things you're involved with and, and noted for at Secret Lab um, is, of course, game development. What's uh, especially appealing to game developers about doing this in Swift? Uh, how does Swift make it easier? So Swift really is really easy and quick to write. Like, I know that kind of sounds like a, a meaningless platitude when it comes to a programming language, but there's so much less of it to write when it comes to Swift that it's actually meaningful. It's, you know, it's just, there's, there's not much to say. It just makes it easier. It's like there's, there's less words. It's mm -hmm. less typing. Swift is such a modern language that we rarely actually get to develop games in a very modern language, as strange as that sounds. Like for a long time, game engines and games were C++ or Bust, and that's, it's, that's not nothing against C++, but it's C++. It's huge and unwieldy and complicated, and it takes a lot of effort to make it work properly or get up to speed with it. Uh, and then we had sort of an era where it was C-sharp, which is a very modern language in some ways, but is also really old in a lot of other ways. Uh, so Swift is actually one of the few opportunities we have to use a really super modern language for a platform that we know people actually use. And Apple provides a lot of really nifty toolkits for uh, graphics programming with Swift, like SpriteKit, which is a really, really simple 2D engine uh, that comes with iOS and lets you write in Swift. And it has all the stuff you expect. It has objects and physics and all sorts of good stuff. It's built by Apple, so it's maintained by Apple. And it's updated along with Swift, so it's a really good way to build games. And it's just really nice to use such an ultra-modern language for game design. One of your presentations at O'Reilly's OzCon event a few weeks back was building containerized microservices with Swift. Um, yep. uh, first, can you explain the difference between containers and microservices? Uh, <laughs> they're not really interchangeable terms, right? Okay, they're not, they're not really interchangeable terms. And the reason that talk is called that is we wanted to see how many buzzwords we could put in a talk title <laughs> that actually meant something. So we were pretty happy with that. Uh, so... Containerizing obviously means putting something in a container, so we're talking Docker or similar. A uh, microservice is just a service that does a, a small job, so hypothetically you could break one large set of services up into a whole bunch of microservices, and in theory you could write each of those microservices with a different language. That's effectively what microservices means as far as we're concerned. I, I think you'd find def differing definitions of that depending on who you asked and what mood they're in. But as far as we're concerned, a microservice is a small, discrete piece of functionality that you can write with whatever language you feel like, deploy somewhere, and then operate in, in concert with a bunch of other microservices or services that let you, as a whole, provide some sort of functionality. Yeah. Uh, and in our talk at OSCOM, we covered stuff that let you write microservices with Swift. And we use the Kachura framework, which is an open source project on GitHub developed by IBM. I think it's actually developed for Apple on behalf of Apple by IBM. I think Apple funds IBM to some extent with their work on Swift. And Kachura is your standard web framework that lets you define routes and have URLs that respond to things and read and, read and write data, talk to databases and so on. And we sort of run you through the basics of that in that talk. And it's really interesting to see how far Swift has come in the three years it's been around that now you're able to write 
a fairly fully-fledged web framework, put it in a container and deploy it somewhere, fairly standard. You don't need any magical Apple environment. You can just push it onto, uh, you can push it into like uh, IBM's Bluemix environment. You can put it on a Docker container. You can push it anywhere. You can put it onto Heroku. You can run it almost anywhere now. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, another uh, one of your presentations had to do with um, building a backend with Swift. What skills does a developer need to build a backend with Swift? What, what's your advice there? I think any developer who is familiar with object-oriented programming broadly is probably pretty capable of getting up to speed with Swift in terms of the basics in a few hours, mm-hmm. which is what we hoped to teach in that in that session. And I think once you've done that, you can sort of progress from there. Swift is really young, so people who are learning Swift now are really getting in on the ground floor of understanding how this works. It's going to evolve fairly fast. So people who understand it now will be at an advantage because they'll, they'll have a little sort of background knowledge to watch as it develops. And it's going to be in flux for a long time, I think. It's going to be in flux for a long, long time. Unlike something like Python, where they've sort of got a fairly stable Python 2, and then they've got the Python 3, where they mess around with and change things. Swift is probably always going to be messed around with and changed. But any developer who has a relatively good grasp on how a modern object-oriented language works will have no trouble with Swift to build a backend. Let's go back to game development for, for a moment. Um, you do a video, uh, along with John Manning, the, the co-founder of Secret Lab, about how you can build a game in Unity in less than an hour. <laughs> yes, we do. Is, is it really that simple and quick? And, and, and if so, why? Uh, Unity is really a fast game development environment. We love Unity. We use Unity for lots of things. Uh, Unity is really, really straightforward because it takes care of so much of the boilerplate that formerly had to be done for game development. So you've got a scene manager. You can drag a visual object into your scene, attach some code to that, and that's pretty much it. Uh, you could make a, a, a very simple FPS, like a first-person shooter, where you know, uh, disembodied hands have some sort of weapon and run around shooting cubes within an hour with Unity with not much stress at all and very few lines of code. The beauty of using something like Unity is you have to write less code, so less mistakes are on your side, more mistakes are on the engine side, more is taken care of by the engine. Uh, the less code you have to write, obviously, the, the less mistakes you can make, which means it's probably faster. And it's we really love for that reason. We, we're dreaming of the day we can use the Swift Broad language with Unity. And we hopefully some, somebody will make that work one day. Oh, yeah. You, you think that's that's coming? Uh, we think that's plausible. We don't think it's necessarily coming because uh-huh. Unity is based on the Mono runtime, which is the big open source.NET runtime that uh, Microsoft owns. Uh, theoretically, you could host the Swift language on top of the Mono runtime. Uh, there are a few crazy people on the internet trying to make that work. I'm sure somebody will succeed one day. You want to share anything uh, to tell us uh, tell us about what's new and exciting that you're that you're working on now at, at Secret Lab? We're working on lots of things. We're working on a, a bunch of really cool projects for O'Reilly. We just finished a whole bunch of game development learning path content. There's videos on everything from how to learn how to do just enough art so you can work on 2D games of your own. There's a whole series of videos on Unity basics and making various types of games with Unity. And we're also working on a, a whole bunch of new videos on Swift features, including some videos, video training on Swift backend stuff, like the talks we've been doing at OzCon. Uh, and also, personally, we're working on a number of games, including a game, obviously not for O'Reilly, for our own purposes, about Leonardo da Vinci trying to reach the moon. And it's an old-fashioned point-and-click adventure game, so we're really having fun with that. Well, Paris, this has been great. Um, are there any upcoming conference speaking engagements or events that, that you want to tell our listeners about? In late August in Melbourne, Australia, uh, I am part of the organizing team of a conference called DevWorld, which is a, a community nonprofit iOS and MacOS Swift programmers conference. And uh, the call for presenters is open and will be open while you're listening to this. And we'd love to hear submissions from anyone working with or on MacOS or iOS or with Swift or have any level of expertise or speaking experience. It would be great to hear from people. And if listeners want to find out more about you and what you're doing, uh, where can they go online? 
they can check out secretlab.com.au and they can find all the stuff they need there. Okay. Well, Paris, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and, and we thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. Well, the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference was held in early April in New York. And for a little recap of that, we are now joined by Brian Foster, content lead at O'Reilly Media and the co-chair of the Software Architecture Conference. Um, Brian, it seems like there was a lot on microservices and serverless architectures and much more, of course. But what did you take away about the, the current state of software architecture from the meeting? Well, it's definitely an area that is very much expanding. Um, there is a lot of interest in, as you mentioned, a lot of these newer key technologies that we're seeing. But there's also a real need still for people, again, even though the, you know this conference has been around now in its third year, for people to really learn the fundamentals of software architecture. And what that really entails is, again, not just the basics from a technical perspective, you know, learning how to do things such as modeling, learning how to understand different types of architecture patterns, but there's also a real need for folks to still learn the business side of software and what that means and how do you talk to managers and how do you talk to teams? How do you build teams that can work with certain types of architecture? Um, there's really this dual, this interesting dual side that's emerging in this in this area that, again, is very technical focused and wanting to learn and, and dive deep into core patterns that have been around for a long time. But also some of these newer patterns, some, such as microservices and, and serverless architecture. But that's also being married with this idea that people really need to know, you know, if they want to work with certain types of architectures, how do they communicate it within their teams, within their organizations? And how do they make decisions and how do they lead that type of change within the organization? What about the future? Did, did you get a sense or did the, com did the community get a sense about the about the future from some of the things that were discussed? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are there's a lot of interesting things happening within the space. Microservices, as you know, is is an area that is continuing to receive, you know, to receive a lot of buzz. I think it's, you know, at the conference, we, we definitely wanted to have coverage of still the introductory type of content that is still key right. to people understanding when they're making this migration move with their, their, uh, you know, their legacy technology, how do they do it? But there's also this newer, you know, kind of focus on, you know, what, what the next steps of micro of, of implementing a microservices technology, you know, uh, architecture is and what that means for an organization. And for example, you know, there's a lot of different concerns that once you move to this architecture, you'll need to keep in mind. For example, you know, how do you monitor microservices? It's one thing to have the architecture in place, but once you have, say, you know, 100, 200 microservices running, how do you monitor them? How do you make sure that, you know, if something goes down, how do you come back quickly? Um, there's also the data piece. There's a messaging piece. Again, you know, you have a lot of different microservices in place, but how do they communicate with one another? How do they do so in an efficient way? So there's all these different concerns that I think attendees were really interested in. And it's a, a themes that we started to see throughout a lot of the presentations there. But then there's also this focus on some newer technologies that have been receiving some buzz, but I think are now just starting to come into their own. And I think we'll continue to grab a lot of mind share with architects and developers. And, and a couple of those are, of course, serverless, um, a very big new area. And again, you know, a lot of that is driven by Amazon, you know, and their AWS platform and, and Lambda, you know, and how that enables, um, you, you know, developers and architects to be really productive with building these types of systems. So I think, we'll, you know, as serverless continues to build, and there is a lot of, a lot of, interest in this technology. Um, it, it really is, I think, going to be the next evolution of the cloud space. Um, another space that we continue to see um, some good traction in is this whole reactive idea. And again, reactive, you know, you know, has many different paradigms. It's a programming paradigm, but it's also a way to build systems. Um, it's very event driven. It's asynchronous. There, you know, it, it, it tends to be a trickier mode 
of, of, of architecture. And it's tricky in that, again, you know, pieces tend to operate on their own. So it, it, it does marry very well with the microservices uh, movement that we're seeing. Yeah. But there are a lot of different principles that companies or you know, teams that are making the move to this type of architecture need to keep in place. So we did see a lot of really interesting talks around this area. And I would say, you know, some other interesting takeaways, again, or, or, you know, that I noticed were really the, the, you know, this, this idea of, you know, how are companies these days, you know, working with, you know, their architecture, you know, and, and how are they making the move to particular types of architecture. And so essentially, you know, interesting case studies, you know, there was one from, um, you know, Stanley Black and Decker, you know, kind of talking about their move to serverless, which was really fascinating. Comcast had a really interesting talk about how, how they migrated a lot of their legacy, you know, monolithic architecture to, again, the cloud, but also, you know, microservices and how they did that. I thought that was really interesting. And I think attendees really you know, from what I noticed, really came away with a sense of, wow, you know, this is, yeah, I, I can't believe they did it this way. And also some takeaways of how they can, you know, start similar types of conversations within their or, their own organizations. Okay, well, Brian, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll, we'll definitely be checking back in with you in the coming weeks on this podcast. So thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's been great. Thanks for listening. The next O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference will be held October 18th and 19th in London. We'll have a link for more information in the show notes that accompany this episode. And likewise, we'll also have links where you can get more information on Paris Butfield Addison's books, videos, and learning paths on Swift and other topics. If you like this podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Lyle.